The following is for information purposes only and should in no way be construed as investment advice. For today's episode, I am joined by Ian Bradley for a conversation with Stephen Hemsley, the founder and executive chairman of Franchise Brands. Ian is a qualified franchise professional and a veteran of the franchise industry, starting his own business, Hospital Entertainments, in 1990 and growing it successfully via franchise before exiting in 2000. Ian has worked as a franchise consultant and franchise director for multiple brands and has been a board director and a regional chairman of the British Franchise Association. I've known Ian for many years, and I'm delighted he has been able to join us today for our chat with Stephen. After qualifying as an accountant and a spell at 3i, Stephen spent 20 years driving the remarkable growth of Domino's Pizza in the UK. First a CFO, then a CEO, and then chairman of the UK-listed company. Along with Nigel Ray, Stephen went on to establish franchise brands, which he grew and floated on the AIM market. Today, Franchise Brands owns consumer franchises, Chips Away, Oven Clean, and Barking Mad, and business franchises, Metro Rod, Metro Plum, Willow Pumps, and the recently acquired Filter Group. Franchise Brands also owns the franchise technology supplier, Azura. The company has a market value of about £180 million and has 600 franchisees and is expected to achieve about £90 million of revenue in the current year. In today's conversation, we get a masterclass on the merits and limitations of the franchise model. We learn about the role of technology in improving operations and why integrity and other guiding principles are important for the development of successful franchise businesses. Stephen also talks about how the lessons he learned from Domino's in the UK have framed the development of franchise brands and how he thinks about the future of the group. Please enjoy our conversation with the maverick, Stephen Hemsley. Hi, Stephen. Thanks for joining us today. Can you just give us a bit of a flavour on your background, please? I wanted to be a, a barrister. My mum wanted me to be an accountant. So guess what? I became an accountant, qualified as a chartered accountant with um, Stroy Hayward, which is now BDO. Spent a year investment banking with a, a spell in New York and then joined 3i, which was, if you like, the start of my career proper, eight, nine years at 3i, eventually becoming an investment director there. Brief period back in the profession and I IPO'd an IT company on the then newly formed AIM market and then joined Domino's as CFO. They were a private company at the time. Nigel Ray had just invested, wanted a CFO with some experience in IPOs. I got that gig thinking that I'd be there a couple of years, see him through an IPO and then go off and do another one. That was my plan. But part of my job as CFO then became finding a new CEO. And so I um, appointed headhunters and they came up with a short list of potential CEOs. And they asked me what I thought of some of these guys. And I said, "Mm, not very much really. And they said, well, why don't you do it then? And I said, well, not really my plan, but I'll give it a go. So your tenure at Domino's, 
you saw revenue increase 25-fold and profit before tax increase 66-fold. Can you just share with us what the lessons were from this amazing journey, this period? Looking back at that time, I recall the sponsorship deal of the Simpsons TV program, which seemed to do so much for putting Domino's brand awareness in the public eye in the UK. I mean, I think the first thing I did as CEO was set down the objectives for the business. Not too many of them. We really only had three, which was product, service, and image. And the image bit, as you say, was greatly enhanced by our sponsorship deal of the Simpsons. The product was and still is the core of obviously any food business. So we were always striving for excellence in the development of the product and development of the menu and obviously service. It was in the very early days of home delivery pizza. And I think the reputation of anything home delivery at the time was pretty poor. So we had to work hard to convince people that we could deliver a pizza to them within 30 minutes because after 30 minutes, uh, hunger turned to anger and probably come on to talk about some of the IT developments there, which were key to solving that problem. I think the other thing that I did in the early days at Domino's, and it's something that's been core to franchise brands, is the development of guiding principles, which everyone works to. The most important of those in any business, but particularly in a franchise business, is integrity. If people don't have integrity, they have no place in any of my businesses. And I don't think they're properly equipped to deal with franchisees either. And I think you can build a team around those guiding principles. And you must recruit against those principles that if when you're interviewing people, they don't come up to snuff on those, they need to go and get happy somewhere else. They're not for us. I think another aspect of growing the business in the way that we did, and again, it applies to any franchise business, is create compelling store-level economics. When I joined Domino's, I would say that the profitability from store operations was marginal. What we did was make improvements in different areas to focus more of the business on growing sales. Because again, as in most businesses, sales really solve everything. We were driving store level economics. And once we'd achieved compelling store level economics, then the job at Domino's was simple, roll it out. So we went from, I don't know, 70 something odd stores when I started to 1200 all across the country. I think the report that I read from 2000 mentioned that you had just launched the e-commerce platform that we just take for granted today. Yes, absolutely. And another interesting stat for you is that Google launched their search engine in 1998. How did we survive without Google? Exactly. And some of the stuff we did at Domino's, we were absolutely at the cutting edge. And a funny story, one of the things we determined was that to make the store-level economics more compelling, to avoid the frustration of customers not being able to get through on the telephone, we needed to go online. But there wasn't the technology available to get the order from the website to the store. So what we did, the back end of our very first internet platform was a fax so we got the message in, we then faxed it to the stores. And at the time, 
I had to install faxes in by then probably 200 stores. So I was looking for the cheapest fax going. And the cheapest fax going was one that used this heat-sensitive paper. So we used to send them through on the heat-sensitive paper. They used to then re-key it into the point-of-sale system. The problem was that a pizza store is quite hot. And these messages lasted about five minutes before the whole page went black. <laughs> Who'd have known? <laughs> yeah, no, nobody did. <laughs> in Domino's in the UK, you kind of went through a difficult period from expanding overseas and losing the trust of your larger franchisees, as I saw it in the UK. It's clearly had its challenges as a business. What are the lessons from this? And I guess the key question I get for franchise brands is, what is the secret of keeping your franchisees content and motivated? Well, I think the problems that Domino's went through in the UK and with the overseas expansion and then with the franchisees, two different problems. The overseas expansion failed because we didn't create a compelling store level economics in the new territories. And we didn't do that because we weren't good enough at running corporate stores. In any new territory, you've got to start by running corporate stores to prove that the concept works before you can then roll it out as a franchise. If you'd like to contrast that with the Australian master franchisee, who's been you know, tremendously successful in expanding overseas, and that's because the senior management there, led by an exceptional guy called Don May, were all ex-Domino's franchisees and could run stores. So when they went into a new market, they very quickly established sound store-level economics, created a core of corporate stores, and then could franchise quite quickly. The dispute with franchisees, I think the first issue was that we allowed two or three franchisees to get too big, and the tail started wagging the dog then. They believed that they were the business and ceased to believe that they were franchisees of a business to which we had the master license. The core celeb was the cost of supply to them in that around about 25% of franchisees' cost of sales is food, and we supplied them with all the food. Ultimately, it is a difficult one because Domino's owned the license to run the market in the UK. The franchisees do not. They are sub-licensees of the brand owner. So I think the lesson for franchise brands is, firstly, never let any individual franchisee get too big and never lose their trust. You mentioned that your journey with Domino's was as a result of meeting up with or teaming up with Nigel Ray. He was a strategic investor, both in Domino's and now in franchise brands. Can you just talk a little bit about the way you work together, how you met, what the working relationship is like? I first met Nigel in 1997 when he was interviewing me for the job of CFO at Domino's. And the first thing to say is I liked him. And it's not essential in business to like your business partners, but it's a great help if you do. And that pervades, I think, a lot of the team we built in franchise brands. We all get on. Second thing about Nigel is I respected him. He obviously had a great deal of integrity, uh, which, as I mentioned before, is absolutely vital in a franchise business. So I thought we can build a business together. Subsequently, we communicate a lot by email. We speak every week. He gives me advice from time to time, but otherwise lets me get on with running the businesses. Just listening to you then, I can 
associate and agree with everything that you've said about the sort of franchise element. It's all about relationships and key factors and fundamentals are things like trust and a word that you used right at the beginning, which is integrity. So I completely understand and buy into those points that you've made. Moving on, can you kindly tell us about the thinking behind the launch of franchise brands and if or how the vision has changed over time? I'd love to say there was a grand master plan, you know, following the success we had at Domino's, but there wasn't. Nigel and I owned about 25% of an aim-listed company called My Home. It transpired that it was very badly run and became over-geared, funding a couple of acquisitions, and it eventually went into administration in the summer of 2008. Robin Chowdhury, who runs a corporate finance business and is Julia Chowdhury's husband, who is now our corporate development director, suggested to Nigel and I that we buy back the underlying franchise businesses. We completed that deal in about August 2008, and then Lehman's went bust in September. We anticipated that obviously there would be a significant credit squeeze. So the plan we had to develop the sort of probably about 12 franchise businesses they have within my home. They were all consumer-facing franchises, as I remember. Yes, they were all based around the home, really, from cleaning to window cleaning to gardening to oven cleaning, car repairs. But a lot of them were subscale. And we determined that following the recession that followed um, Lehman's collapse, that we could only persevere with businesses that had a positive cash flow. And this meant giving back some of the businesses to the underlying franchisees, selling a couple of the car valeting businesses, and actually closing down some. And we focused really just on two businesses, which were actually the two most recent acquisitions of my home, which were Chips Away and Oven Clean. We returned them to decent profitability and then had to consider what we were going to do then, whether we were going to sell them and recover the money we'd lost at my home or continue building a franchise business. And we chose the latter. We then set about building a team that was capable of delivering a bigger franchise business. And unsurprisingly, several members of that team were my ex-colleagues at Domino's. That led to an IPO on AIM in August 2016, and then followed the acquisition of Barking Mad, Metro Rod, Willow Pumps, and most recently, the Filter Group. I mean, I guess the track record is that we acquired my home businesses for £6 million, floated at a pre-money capitalization of about 12, and are now capitalized about 180 million with ambitions to grow it to 500 million and more. And obviously, the link between dominoes and franchise brands is obviously the franchise model. But is that it, or are there other sort of common threads? Numerous other common threads, probably the most compelling of which is the use of technology. As I was saying earlier, one of the bottlenecks at Domino's was the ordering process, which was a source of great frustration to our uh, customers, but also a huge on-cost for the franchisees who had to install the phone lines and have more people to answer them. And I thought, there's got to be a better way of doing this. So we invested heavily in technology. So we went from completely manual system in 1998, 99 
to a situation when I sort of retired in 2019 that more than 90% of the orders came in online. And to the extent that actually in some of the promotion material of Domino's stores now, they don't even put a phone number on. In franchise brands, when we acquired Metrorod, I thought, well, the process involved in receiving, deploying, and reporting 2,000 drainage jobs executed by 500 engineers working at 50 depots across the country can surely benefit from technology. So we started building our own works management system, which we deployed in about well, the original version in about 2019, I think it was. And it's now subject to continuous improvement. I mean, it seems like every other week there's another release of a new bell and whistle we're adding to our vision system, as we call it. We haven't quite got to the holy grail yet. The holy grail is the efficient deployment of engineers to reactive work. And this is really difficult to do because... In reactive work of any sort, whether it's drainage or plumbing, you don't know when the job's coming in, you don't know where it is, and you don't know how long it's going to take to fix it. So you don't know when your engineer is going to be free for the next job. Whereas planned work, obviously, you know all the above, and that's relatively easy to schedule. So we're working on a a system at the moment to deploy reactive work. And when we crack that, the efficiencies that will be available to the franchisees are going to be tremendous. It will be a bit like taking the phones out of Domino's stores. If I may, a couple of questions around Azura, which is a fairly recent tech business that you've acquired. How does the acquisition of Azura fit into the group? And unfortunately, to put you on the spot a little bit from the sort of franchise element, how does the ownership of it compromise any sort of third-party offering? Or is it a means to you know, identifying future acquisition opportunities? The reason we bought it was to secure ownership of our core IT infrastructure. We developed our vision system, our connect system, which is the customer-facing portal. We did that all in partnership with Azura. Simon Pullman, the, the owner of Azura, was looking towards retirement. So we did a deal with him to acquire 100% ownership of Azura. So our primary objective was to secure our core infrastructure. A secondary objective was it quite appealed to provide services to other franchise businesses. You know, as a team, we've got a huge, I mean, I don't know how many hundreds of years experience in franchising, which we could provide to other franchisees businesses. And we thought technology platforms were the way to do that. There is a risk that information could leak from one to another, but we have completely ring-fenced Azura and its management. And I would suggest to any customer that the risk of that information leaking into franchise brands is no greater than it was between the underlying franchise businesses that Azure already serviced. The last point you made on acquisitions... I guess it gives us better visibility of the market, but I think we have about 30 or 40 franchise businesses that are customers of Zura, and there are about a 1,000 franchise businesses in the UK alone. So that visibility isn't tremendous. I'd just like to take a minute to tell you about a UK charity I support called Level Water. Level Water uses the power of swimming to improve lives for children with disabilities. Swimming changes lives 
by building a sense of confidence and self-belief. However, access to swimming in the UK is not available to all. Level Water runs several open water swimming events to raise money for its worthy cause. And I'm fortunate enough to have a place later this month to swim in one of these events and will be joining about 400 other people to swim the six kilometres to Bantham in Devon. In the notes to this episode is a link to a fundraising page. If you have enjoyed listening to this series of In the Company of Mavericks, I would greatly appreciate you making a modest donation to this very worthy cause. Thank you. I'd also be really interested to hear about your thoughts between B2C and B2B franchising. I think at one level, there is no difference between B2C and B2B franchising in that all franchisees must be treated with respect and provided with the services that they effectively sign up and pay for. However, the critical difference is that most B2C businesses are typically one man in one van who want to be trained to do a job, provided with sufficient new business leads, and then be allowed to get on with it. B2B franchises are typically management franchises where the franchisee employs people to undertake the work and they manage a business, which then can grow to a considerable size. And those sort of businesses need much more support from the franchisor. But despite those significant differences, there are certain shared services that they all need. I mean, for example, central marketing to generate new business leads, going back a technology platform, support in training, health and safety advice, finance. Every individual business that I've been involved with had a different style, different culture, different chat element around the coffee machine, etc. I think where the cultural differences arises in operations. So at Franchise Brands, we have different teams running the operations in the different trading styles. I mean, in our case, also extends to direct labor businesses. So we have B2C, which is all franchised. In the B2B division, we have both franchise businesses and direct labor businesses. Operations within the franchise businesses managed by one team, operations within the direct labor businesses which includes Willow Pumps, are managed by their own team. So I presume that own team create the culture within those individual businesses? Yes, although it does, in the end, always come back to the guiding principles we have for the business. And if you like, franchise brands, even on the DLOs, imposes their culture and hires against our own guiding principles. Turning to M&A... How do you assess a good franchise in each space? And how do you retain the entrepreneurial energy that often drives these businesses? Sourcing M&A deals is very difficult. They're either owned by founders or typically these days by private equity firms. Both usually have uh, inflated ideas of the value of their business um, for different reasons. Retaining the entrepreneurial spirit for us at Franchise Brands is a lot easier because we consider ourselves to be entrepreneurs. So someone with that mindset should fit in quite well. The opposite is the case when we have recruited people from the corporate world who struggle with the way we run the business. For example, we have a very quick and informal 
decision-making style. We tolerate failure. We would much rather people try things and fail than not try at all. We don't conduct post-mortems when something goes wrong. We throw it over our shoulder and get on with the next thing. We have a relatively informal style. And those sort of characteristics are really quite supportive of entrepreneurs. So that actually hasn't been a problem for us in the acquisitions we've made. I think Franchise Brands is a happy home for entrepreneurs. How do you value businesses? You've obviously done a number of them within franchise brands. What are the basic yardsticks you look at? We're looking for opportunities to enhance the earnings per share of franchise brands. I guess one of the keys for us is opportunities to accelerate the growth of that business as part of franchise brands. We're quite keen on businesses that if you like, need a bit of work rather than the finished article. Through the team we have at Franchise Brands, we've got most of the bases covered. So we hope that we can use those to accelerate the growth of the business. I think your biggest deals to date, Metro Rod and Filter, are both B2B businesses, but they're also scale businesses in their own right. So you you could apply the term strategic to them, but essentially you followed the same metrics as every other acquisition or were these in a different category? Metro was our first post-IPO acquisition of scale. So it was therefore a very important strategic deal, which started to make sort of full use of the infrastructure we'd created. We therefore paid a pretty full price for that business, but it got franchise brands on the map. So I think those were the drivers of the Metro Rob business. The filter deal was focused more on the merging of two complementary businesses where we saw lots of synergies. And that's essentially between Metro Rod and Filter, is it? Metro Rod, Metro Plum, Filter, Willow Pumps, the Filter DLO in the UK the strategic expansion into new territories in the US and Europe. And that geographical expansion will then give us the opportunity to expand maybe the other B2C brands in those new territories. And having a sort of bridgehead in those territories is very important because I don't want to make the same mistakes we made at Domino's by going into a new territory and creating a new overhead supported by too few franchisees. But where you've already got infrastructure there, actually bolting on another brand is relatively inexpensive. So Filter bought with it a lot of strategic wins for the enlarged franchise brand deal. And that's why I call it more of a merger than the Metro Rod deal was. If you get the growth path for Filter in the US right, so the acquisition would probably justify itself on that basis alone, I would have thought, given the propensity to consume grease in the US fast food industry. <laughs> yes, it is an absolutely superb business for to have in the US and the UK and Europe. Europe is subscale, so we've got to accelerate the growth there. The UK is a mixture of a, a relatively small franchise business and a reasonable sized labor business, but again, in lots and lots of different areas. So, you know, what we're beginning to work on there is how we consolidate those into the enlarged group because, you know, there's an awful lot of synergy between the filter DLO in the UK and Willow Pumps, for example. So, a fair bit of work to do there. 
interestingly, the similarities between those two deals is that both businesses had been through a difficult period prior to acquisition for different reasons. I mean, Metro Rob was horribly mismanaged and Filter had been through the whole COVID lockdown thing where hospitality had been badly hit. So in both cases, as I mentioned earlier, we had something to bring to the party. So was Metro Rod previously owned by private equity? It had a pretty horrible history in that the original founders of it sold it to Thames Water. So it was part of a big utility. It was then sold to Spice Group, which was a highly acquisitive failure. And when it failed, that went into CIN, which was a private equity type operation, which was then sold again to another private equity operation. So it had been passed from pillar to post? It had been. So by the time we got hold of it, it needed a fair bit of work. But the team we've created there have done a super job, and it's expanding very rapidly now. Early in the conversation, you talked about, or you mentioned DLOs, and that you have some in your larger businesses. So why do you see that to be necessary? What we wanted to do was to expand the range of services we offered in the franchise channels. And some of the things that we wanted to do were technically quite demanding. And we felt that the most cost-effective way of expanding the range of schools we had was to buy an existing player in that market. Willow Pumps happened to be a supplier to Metro Rod, and we were subcontracting a fair bit of work to them. So they were an obvious target. Now, Willow Pumps in its own right also had challenges in that they were servicing some very large national customers from two depots, one in Kent and one in Yorkshire. So the faraway locations were very difficult for them to service effectively. So our 50 depot network within Metro Rod gave them an opportunity to provide better services to their existing customers and also take on new customers with wide distribution across the UK. So it worked both ways. Now, the execution of that has been somewhat interrupted by the COVID lockdowns because, you know, what we were hoping was that the Willow guys could teach the Metro Rod guys the intricacies of pump servicing and support them. But the face-to-face training that we were trying to undertake kept on getting disrupted by the COVID lockdowns and, you know, a declining business in the hospitality part of our business. So that has been somewhat delayed, but we're back on track now. And um, the pump element of Metro Road is now growing quite strongly with the introduction of the filter DLO, which also has a significant pump business within it. There are further opportunities there. And the filter was trying to service the whole of the UK from just one depot in rugby. So again, our branch network is going to be very helpful there. And these are some of the synergies that come out of the filter and Willow DLO deals. What do you find are the limitations of a franchise model? Or don't you believe that there are any? Uh, No, I do believe there are limitations. I mean, the lack of direct control of the expansion of the business, this can only be executed by the franchisees. So we only have a sort of vicarious ability to make changes. And you've got to then do that by incentives, a sort of carrot and stick approach, if you like, to get them to grow their business 
as we would want them to. Encouragement for those that don't wish to grow to exit the business, recruitment of new, more ambitious franchisees, a use it or lose it approach where uh, franchisees that don't want to grow but have a a nice business within a limited geographical area, they carry on working that geographical area, but the areas they're not using, we give to someone else who's more willing to expand. Getting things done in a franchise business is more difficult than it is in a DLO, but the flip side of that has huge advantages in that the franchisees employ the labor and run the business on the ground, which is a real challenge to do that centrally. Just on that point, Stephen, do you give assistance to your franchisees to encourage them to sell the franchise at the end of a period or have a conversation with them to transfer the franchise to a different franchisee? We're not encouraging any franchisees that want to grow with us to exit. Those franchisees that, for example, are approaching retirement, we start having conversations with them early on as to what their intentions are. But, you know, in some cases, they want to pass it on to family members. And, you know, in those sort of situations, we help train up the family member who will be taking over. And we're really quite keen on that as a means of exit. In my work as a franchise director over many years, my passion is to set people up in business and then sort of mentor them in a way to make them as successful as possible. That's my passion. What's the driving passion behind your love of franchising? I think it's quite similar. I love seeing someone come into us with potentially not even relevant skills to teach them the business model that they decide to franchise and to see them prosper. Because as we both know in franchising, if the franchisees are not successful, we're not successful. And to grow a franchise business, you've got to have a passion for your franchisees, their viability, their happiness. One of the things we're quite keen on in franchise brands is we do a lot of mental health training. And we're pretty sensitive to how our franchisees are getting on because we have now 600 franchisees across the group. Everyone's life story is different. And sometimes they're happy just to get on with it, keep their heads down. Other times they have issues, which hopefully we can help them with. And you know, if that means in some cases early retirement, in other cases, maybe we push them a little bit too hard in um, expanding their business and they're over trading. So we have to help them out financially to get over that. But the worst thing in the world is to lose a franchisee. And and we, we do everything in our power to avoid that and to continue growing the franchise communities. So if I'm a barking mad franchisee in an area, do I have any knowledge or association, albeit indirect, with the oven cleaning franchisee in my areas? What sense do I have of being part of a wider group? I would say that's quite limited. They all would know that you know, franchise brands is the franchisor. I've tried in the past to incentivize one franchisee to cross-sell the services of another, and have been totally unsuccessful. Most franchisees are not for selfish reasons, but for sort of, I guess, bandwidth reasons, are focused on their own business. You're providing them with a package that gives them financial independence. You're absolutely right. I mean, you know, franchisees are entrepreneurs in their own right, and they're focused on building their own business, you know, for their family. And I absolutely respect that. 
So in answer to your question, there's not a lot of cross-fertilization, far more in Metro Rod and Metro Plum, for example, where the definition between a, a plumbing job and a drainage job maybe not always be totally clear. You've clearly got a passion for the businesses you've got. You've done some very interesting deals which give you a lot of growth potential. What's your vision of the future here? We will be a still larger quoted PLC with a still larger range of franchise businesses. Some of those businesses will sit within the existing structure, for example, acquired B2C franchise businesses that are not management franchises will sit within our existing B2C structure. The philosophy behind our existing B2B businesses is broadly water in, waste out. So anything that fits within that definition will sit within our existing B2B structure. But we're also open to acquiring new franchise systems of scale, which would become new divisions of the group. And with the acquisition of Filter in the US and Europe, our horizons now are, are somewhat expanded in where that might take place. We're actively looking for acquisitions of scale in the US market. We're cracking on 200 million market cap at the moment. Next stop is 500 and beyond. In this journey that you've been on, which you've been very kind to share with us, the sort of trainee accountant, private equity, and the amazing success of the growth of Domino's in the UK, to now being the chairman, owner, manager of near enough 200 million pound aim-listed company. What have you changed your mind about? I've always had a reasonable grasp of my own limited abilities and therefore value the contribution of a team, whether that's Sharon, my wife, who supported me in everything I've done for the last 40-odd years, or the teams we built at Domino's or Franchise Brands, or indeed the team that is the franchise community. They've always been probably the most important thing to me. Things I would have done differently as things that have gone wrong, but I think, um, you know, what you don't get right sort of makes you stronger, really. As long as you don't do it twice, I think some rocks along the road and failure is acceptable. But as I say, just don't make a habit of it. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time. I've really enjoyed the conversation. going to continue to follow franchise brands with interest, and hopefully we can uh, have another conversation and a catch-up at a later date. And many thanks, Stephen, and uh, hopefully bump into you at a BFA conference. I hope so. We can swap some more war stories. <laughs> All the very best. Thank you for your time. Thank you both. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of In the Company of Mavericks, please subscribe at our website, inthecompanyofmavericks.com where we would appreciate your feedback and any suggestions you might have for future episodes.